Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading this morning will come from John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting in verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Please be seated. Would you open God's book, please, to John chapter 2? If you want an outline of the sermon, this is going to be an expository sermon, meaning we're going to go verse by verse for... 11 verses. You want an outline of the sermon? Just turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, and I'll meet you there in just a couple of minutes. It's a fascination to me as I hunger for everything I can learn about Jesus, everything that the Holy Spirit has given us in this Word to know about Him. I just want to know it. I want to dig it out and find it. I'm fascinated by it because I love Him, and I want to spend eternity with Him. Today I want to talk about Joseph and his mother Mary from John chapter 2. There are, let me just pose this question to you because I think before I thought about this and studied it, I'd have gotten the answer wrong. How many, how many conversations do you have in the scripture between Joseph and his mother? And I don't know, my, my reaction was, I don't know, I have several I guess. No, 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 that's not true. You don't have several, you have two. You just have two conversations between Jesus and Mary that are recorded. The first one, of course, is when Jesus is 12 years old and he is, he's gone with his parents to the Passover in Jerusalem. And when it comes time to come home, Joseph and Mary just figure he's with them and, and they start the trek back. But it gets to be a day long that they haven't seen him and they search through the relatives, extended family. He's not there. They become worried. They go back to Jerusalem and start. It was three days. There were three days without Jesus. Worried sick. They find him in the temple. He's 12. He's asking questions of the doctors of the law, answering and asking questions. And what is very interesting as we kind of dissect the relationship between Mary and Jesus, this is unique, y'all. This is unique. It is true that he is her son, conceived of the Holy Spirit, but he's God. His purpose on earth is not like yours I mean, I mean, we're different, and our relationship with our close family, we, we feel a responsibility, and biblically, we've got a responsibility, but what about Jesus? Jesus is God. He's God. How much, how much time and commitment can he exercise toward Mary in view of, I mean, he came to seek and save that which was lost, and she said, Jesus, 
we've been worried sick about you. Why, why, why did you do this? Why have you, and why have you not, I mean, we, don't, we lost you. Remember his reaction to this? Now, this is going to be important because the two conversations that you have in Scripture between Jesus and Mary bear a striking similarity that I haven't seen before until I was writing this sermon. I haven't seen it before. He said, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? And I don't think, I mean, that wasn't sassing. He's God. Bear in mind. And you know something else? Now, now the Bible says there that, that Joseph and Mary did not understand what, was, what this was about. But she knows one thing. I can tell you this. She knows he's the Christ, the Son of God. Does she know that? I mean, for a fact, James, does she know it for a fact? She does. Because she knows that what was born in her was conceived not in the regular way, but of the Holy Spirit. She knows. Was he being terse with her? Don't you know I must be about my father's business? No. This is the bedrock reality. That, that their relationship is going to be a unique one. Does he love her? Oh, there's no question about that. The second one is in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water to wine. And it's this interaction, this conversation. It's not very deep or long, but it, but it bears something very similar. And that is that Jesus has to communicate to her, you know I love you, you know I want to care for you. But I've when we get to John chapter 2, he has been baptized of John. He's begun, just begun his earthly ministry. He's 30 years old, and so he's headed now. I mean, he's got his mind set. What's in front of him? What his responsibility is is to teach and to prepare these disciples to establish the church. He's got to, everything's got to be laid out, and he knows the timetable. Now, you've got to get that. We'll talk about that some more in a few minutes. He knows the timetable coming up to the crucifixion, and he knows about the crucifixion. This morning when I was eating the Lord's Supper, I was thinking about this, was that I, I know about the crucifixion and, and a number of details because of Scripture. He knew it because of Scripture too. We had Isaiah 53 read this morning, and Tom did a terrific job in getting our minds ready. Do you think Jesus knew Isaiah 53? And when he's talking to Mary, and I'm about to read it, when he was talking to Mary... You know, he's, he's got this in front of him. He's gonna, his ministry is going to last about three years, and then they're going to execute him. Psalm 22. Did he know Psalm 22 that described the crucifixion in some detail about 700 years before it occurred? Yes, he knew. What, what must his mind be filled with? Now, before we get to the text, let me just touch on this. There are three Greek words that are used about miracles of Jesus. Three key ones. I'm going to throw them up on the screen. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but dynamis is the word that you think about in reference to a miracle. What's a miracle that you would say? Well, I think you would say it's a supernatural occurrence. That's what I call it. It it is something outside of nature, an act that can't happen in nature. If you break your arm in six weeks, it heals up. Mm, That's natural. If you break your arm and Jesus touches it and it's healed, it's already mended, that's, that's supernatural, that's a miracle. And, and so dynamis is that, and you have an example there of that word being used. The second Greek word is tiros, and tiros is typically translated wonder. And it's, it's usually linked up with something like the word sign, signs and wonders. And this emphasizes the emotion evoked from the people who witnessed the miracle. What's, it's astonishment, it is amazement, it is wonder. When somebody views, sees one of the miracles of our Lord. In John chapter 2, the Greek word we're going to work with that's it's here is this third one, Simeon. Simeon. And it means 
a sign, typically translated, often translated a sign. And, and it, the idea is that because of this miracle, you connect to heaven. You know that this is a sign that this person is from heaven. It is the way you view that person because of this miraculous act. And so it's a sign of something else, and it's a sign of, of his deity. All right, let's get started. Here's John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. We don't know where this is, by the way, today. And, and uh, it, it must have been a very small little village because there are other Canas, and so he specifies as Cana of Galilee, and we're, we're not sure where it is, but you know that it's in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, observe this little detail, and that is that, that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. It's not said about Mary, which leads people to believe, and also because of how she's going to act, it, it leads people to believe that she might be kin to the person being married, and so she has a role to play as a hostess. When it came time to replenish the supply of wine, Mary took it upon herself. She doesn't seem, seem like a guest, uh, just a guest. It sounds like that she has a role to play in making this thing happen. Joseph isn't there. I think he's dead. I, I think by the time you have this, Jesus is 30. I think Joseph is, is already gone. When you drop down to verse 12, and our lesson today is just through verse 11, but you add verse 12, after these, he went down to Capernaum. Look at this. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. No mention of Joseph. I think he was already dead. I know, I know that by the time the cross happens, about three years later, that Joseph has gone there because, because Jesus gives the care of his mother to John. So Mary is stressed. I mean, she's... She, I, I shouldn't laugh at her, I, I just, but I can't help it. She's funny here because she comes to Jesus and she, she doesn't elaborate. According to the scripture, she just says, they have no wine. I think that's, that's funny because I've been around weddings in my life. And my role has been, you know, except with my kids, my role has been the preacher and in, in many of the weddings. Anyway, I suppose I've, I've conducted as many weddings as most average preachers. And it's always a great honor. I don't tell jokes at weddings. Never did tell Joe. I never, I've never told a joke at a wedding. I'm not criticizing other preachers. I just don't do it. I, I just, uh, I don't think it's a time for joking. It's very serious to me. And, and uh, I, I want to tie that knot very tight, and I'll tie it with the Word of God. It's a wedding feast. Jesus goes there with his disciples, which is kind of impressive to me. I think we, we, should, we should follow his pattern. There are things like this where we rejoice with those who rejoice Romans chapter 12, 15, and we, there he was. But, but Mary is stressed. Now, did you, ever, did you ever go to a wedding rehearsal? Paul, you've been to a lot of wedding rehearsals. And, and you ever go where the, the director or directress of the rehearsal was the mother of the bride? She'll drive you crazy, boy. She will drive you crazy. It's got to be done right. And it's got to be done right now. It's got to be done right now. Now, it's interesting that Mary doesn't elaborate. With, or this is a conversation. You can see her eyes get big, and she says, they're out of wine. It's like, 
Is this his problem? I mean, it's not his problem. He came as a guest at the wedding. They have no wine. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, when Cindy and I hadn't been married very long, I, I, I had to ask her this favor. And she's complied, I think, pretty much for our whole marriage. And that is that just before I preach, you know, we sit down like we did this morning. My mind is filled with what I'm about to say. I can't wait to get up here and talk about Jesus and John 2. My mind is filled with that. And I'm a man, and man, men just think about one thing at the time. That's all we're good for. One thing, not like a woman. A woman can think of a lot of things. You know how that works. I'm good for one thing. And, and if we would sit down just before the worship starts, and she tells me some problem, honey, please, please, don't do this. So I made this kind of rule. Don't, don't tell me any problems before I want to preach. I'm going to get up to pray. Don't do that. And, you know, because she would sometimes sit down and she would say, oh, Glenn, well, what's the matter? Euodius just stepped on the foot of Syntyche, and Syntyche stuck her tongue out at Euodius, and it's a big mess. I can't deal with that right now. You know what? I'm going to preach. That's what I'm about to do is preach. That's a feeble example, illustration of this point. But but Mary comes to Joseph, and she says, we have no wine. And Jesus' response was, I'm in verse 4, woman, now, don't take that as cruelty or he wasn't being ugly. You got that back in, man, in John 19 when he's on the cross. Um, be, woman, behold your son. And, and so I don't think that was a rudeness in him, but it is clear. I mean, it is, it's rather pointed, I think. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Literally, the Greek means, what do you and I have in common in regard to this subject? That's what it means. Now, I've said to you before that I think that Jesus winked at Mary because he appears to say no to this request, this implied request. And she took it as a yes. She turns and she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So she's very short with her sentences. They have no wine. What have I got to do? This is not my thing. Then then, uh, he must have winked at her or grinned at her or something because he softened and he did what, my hour has not yet come. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but she took it as a yes. And yet there's a bit of reproach that you can't get away from here. There's a bit of a smell of a rebuke here. I'm not connected to this. I'm not connected. What was he thinking about? You know, he's begun his ministry. What's in front of him? What kind of weight is on the shoulders of my Lord? He's God. In Matthew 12 and 46, I think you get clarity. So you have this, these two occasions of controversy, and I'm going to finish this up, but two occasions, I'm sorry, of conversation between Mary and Jesus. He's 12. Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? It's true that I love you and that I, that I want to you know, do all the things I should do with you, but he said, I've got to be about my father's business. And so he was defending that action. When you get to the, the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, he said... What, what, what do we have in common in reference to this problem? You know, I, I'm not part of this. And then when you get to John chapter, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus is teaching a large crowd, a multitude of people, and a messenger comes and says, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you. They want to see you. They want to talk to you. And what did Jesus say then? Now this, I don't, I don't want you to take this as Jesus being rude. Hebrews 4.15 says he was without sin. He wasn't mean, but he's God. 
and he's got to prioritize. And he said, who are, who's my mother and who are my brothers? He pointed, he pointed out to the crowd and he said, whoever serves God, whoever obeys God is my brother and my sisters and my mother. Does he love her? Come on. Of course he loves her. But he's not like you and me. I think, I think that what you have here then is this clear pushback. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And then he smiles and says, okay, okay. But then I want to pick up one more thing. And this is the second part of the sermon. My hour is not yet come. I want you to take a little walk with me just for a couple of minutes through the book of John about the time. It isn't just that they crucified Jesus. And you mustn't, you mustn't say in reference to the crucifixion that Jesus was martyred. Don't use the word martyred ever with Jesus. The disciples were martyred. They didn't mean to die. They didn't want to die. They, were died, as, they died as a result of what they were preaching. But Jesus came to die. And throughout his life, he knew that that was going to happen. And that is clearly illustrated by what I'm about to do with you. So if you have your paper Bible, you, you might want to underline this series of verses. I, in mine, I just have the clauses Underlined. So in John chapter 2, he said, my hour is not yet come. You'd want to underline that, that phrase, my hour is not yet come. And then we go to chapter 7 and verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Talking to his brothers, but your time is always ready. Chapter 7, verse 8. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now down to verse 30. I'm in chapter 7 of verse 30. Then they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. He's talking about the crucifixion and those things which would rapidly bring that about. I'm telling you that it was all calculated for when this would occur. Now here's chapter 8 and verse 20. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Now that's chapter 8. When you hit chapter 11, what happens there is the the raising of Lazarus. Now I want you to see the raising of Lazarus as being a pivotal point. It is a catalyst that brings about the crucifixion. They can't deny that he's the Son of God because he raises the dead. It was the raising of Lazarus that was public enough that this, this tripped the switch. Verse 53 of John 11 says, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. There's the pivotal point. Now chapter 12 and verse 23, and observe that the language of Jesus has changed about the hour. I'm in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. I'm sorry, 23. John 12, 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hours come now. Drop down same chapter 12 to 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Now chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. The hour has come. My mind goes back to where our text is today in, in chapter 2. And Jesus said to his mama, there about we don't have any wine woman what have I to do with you about this how are we connected my hour is not yet come 
He was going to calculate and must calculate what he does leading up to the cross. Here's chapter 17 now in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. And that was just before the cross. All right, here's point number three. I want to get back to our text now, John 2 and verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And there were six, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. That is to say, this is water for drinking, but not just drinking. It was also used for their various washings. And so they have these these water pots for that purpose, uh, but they were empty. There were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Um, Some translations make that head waiter. So it's not the groom talked about here. It's the person who's in charge of making sure everything goes smoothly Draw out some some now and take it to him, and they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. See, he's blaming him for this, the groom. The groom must have done this. Every, everybody, you know, everybody knows that at the beginning is set out the good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs of Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. All right. This sermon really isn't about drinking alcohol. It's about what Jesus did at Cana of Galilee in this first of his earthly works. But, it, but you, can't, you can't discuss it without mentioning something about the alcohol. It is, it, is, it is sad to me that through the years, Christians who were inclined to drink beverage alcohol, intoxicating beverages, that were bent on doing that, and you already know that I'm encouraging people not to drink at all, but it's, it's, a, it's a sad thing to me that people through the years have used John chapter 2 as a license to drink. After all, Jesus turned water into wine. There you are. Jesus endorsed it. We should be able to drink. It's a misuse of the passage. Now, take three facts. I'm going to give you three facts. Number one is that Jesus knew the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is is filled with so many examples of the dangers of and prohibitions about intoxicating beverages. Take, for example, let's go down through a list of them. Here's the first one, Genesis 9.21. You know about this, he drank wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Who's that about? It's about Noah. And, and if you know Genesis, you know that terrible things, terrible things happened. As a result, he planted a vineyard and he let it ferment and he drank the wine and he was drunk and terrible things happened as a result. What about Genesis chapter 19? And here, you remember what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, that's not the end of the story because Lot's daughters then who survived it reason in their minds some craziness and they give him intoxicating beverage and he drinks it and do you know what happened then? Reckon Jesus knew about all that. Reckon he knew about Noah? Reckon he knew about Lot? 
Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 is, is very powerful. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And get this now, whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. I ask you this question, is Jesus wise? Come on. I'm telling you, we've got to start with the facts. And the facts, is that, the facts are that, that uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says he was without sin. Did he know about the Old Testament? He lived under the Old Testament. He knew about all these passages. What about Proverbs chapter 23? Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger along with the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look at, on the wine when it's red. Don't look at it when it sparkles in the cup. Get away from it when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You ever known of that to happen? Well, everybody in this room has known of people. Yes, you will, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. You do crazy things. Like one who lies at the top of the mist, a mast, saying, They've struck me, but I was not hurt. They've beaten me, but I didn't feel it. And then he concludes, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? You suppose that Jesus knew about that? Hold, and the answer is, of course, yes. Look at the next one. Here's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Don't be dis- Did he know about what was going to be in his New Testament, the last will and testament, testament that he was going to leave for us? Of course he knew what was going to be in it. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Dissipation. I don't, I don't reckon you've used that word recently. It, it, the Greek word means unsavedness or excess. And that's the first fact. I'm just saying that Jesus knew the Old Testament, lived by the Old Testament. Here's the second fact, is that Jesus made a bunch of this beverage. He made, he didn't just make a little bit. He made 150 or 160 gallons of it. I mean, it, it's, it, it takes your breath away to think about the quantity. 150 gallons of it. Did he know about Esther chapter 1? Remember what happened in Esther chapter 1? Ahasuerus, the Persian king, and he had a, a wife named Vashti. But he was having a party, and, and he, as a result, and I won't go into less detail, but the fact is that, that he banished Vashti because she didn't follow his drunken requirement of her. And the Bible says in that passage that, that royal wine at that party, royal wine was in abundance. I mean, it turned out bad. It turned out bad. You reckon Jesus knew about that? Jesus made a large amount of it. I'm telling you that this wine was in abundance. He made 150 or 160 gallons of it. Now, the third thing is that Jesus obeyed the law without sin. I don't want you to, I don't want you to look at this and think about... It just doesn't make any sense to me that Jesus knew what he did and then he, he hoisted... 150 gallons of this beverage on this party. And you could say, well, maybe they equally divided it out so everybody just had a little bit. Come on now. This is a feast. Don't you know you got some people there going to say, just leave the pitcher? I mean, it doesn't, it's not reasonable. And Jesus kept the old law without flaw. Jesus kept the old law without sin. What was his purpose on the earth? It was to seek and save that which was lost. The very idea that he would hoist 150 gallons of this beverage on that party to, to look like Spring break on the beach. I've got a friend who's a sheriff's deputy in Florida. And, and so we talk occasionally on the phone. And when he calls and he says it's spring break, he tells me about what's going on there. <laughs> I don't even have to tell you what, what kinds of things he says. You, you know what's going on. It's, uh, 
It's a lot, of, a lot about alcohol. And his worst problems, I can tell you right now, are about alcohol. Is that who Jesus is? You really? Come on now. Is that what Jesus is? You, can you reconcile that with who he was and what his purpose was on this earth? And he, and he gave intoxicating beverage to... And these people had already been drinking whatever it was they were drinking. I'm asserting to you that what they were drinking was grape juice. I'm asserting to you that that's what it was and that they, they weren't drunk. The very idea that we would put that on Mary doesn't make any sense. Mary, who was chosen to be the, the mother of Jesus because of her purity and her holiness. I don't mean she was an angel. She was a human, but she was chosen and righteous. The very idea that she would say, Jesus, they're already a little tipsy now. We need to get them more, right? We're out of wine that, because they're already going this direction. Really? Is that really what we think? It just doesn't make any sense. Here's the next thing I want to mention the, before we leave the point, is that in the Old and New Testaments, the most common words for wine can, are mentioned both in a in a new wine or grape juice way, and the word is translated wine, or in a hard wine, an intoxicating wine, both the major Greek or Hebrew words in your Bible. Just because you read wine in the Bible doesn't mean that you must always assume that it's an intoxicating beverage. Don't, don't assume that because you'd be mistaken. And sometimes it's just terribly plain. For example, look at a couple. You already know, for example, the one that I mentioned a while ago from Genesis chapter 9. Can we throw that back up? What you got next? There you are, 21. Now, this, of course, is a hard drink, right? Uh, and Noah, Noah here drinks it. Or you have Genesis 19, and Lot, Lot drank it. Is there any question that we're talking about that? Now, let's kick back up in the slides to Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 10. Gladness is taken away, and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards, there will be no singing, no, no shouting, no treaders will tread out wine in the presses. You know what the press is? It's the vat. You, you stomp it with your feet. Didn't you ever watch Lucy? She stomped in the vat. She was squeezing out the, the grape juice from the grapes, and it came out a little spigot there. And, and here the word wine is used in the English translation, but it's not talking about an intoxicating beverage. I'm just saying that you just can't look at the word wine and think it's always intoxicating. But let's do another one. Here's Joel chapter 2 and verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat. The vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. Any concern about that? Is that intoxicating? No, that's right out of the vat. Matthew 9, verse 17. Nor do they put new wine. What's new wine? New wine is grape juice. They don't put new wine in, into old wineskins and etc. Just because you read wine doesn't mean that it's an intoxicating beverage. I want to give you a quote from a theologian. Andreas Kossenberger. He said, and he's a, he's a respected teacher in a, in a seminary somewhere, in the Greco-Roman world and presumably in the Palestine of Jesus' day, three kinds of wine were used. Fermented wines, which usually were mixed in the proportion of two or three parts of water to one of wine, to new wine made of grape juice and similar to cider not fermented, and three, wines in which by Boiling the unfermented grape juice, the process of fermentation had been stopped and the formation of alcohol prevented. I just want to show you that, that you mustn't jump to conclusions. You've got to look at the context. What's going on here? And I'm telling you that Jesus knew the Old Testament and Jesus made a 
ton of this, this beverage on, on this feast where they've already had what is called wine to drink. And you can't live with the consequence of that if you interpret that as being an intoxicating beverage. Now, let's look at Pliny the Elder. Here's history. Wines are most beneficial when all their potency has been removed by the strainer. Sounds a lot like the best wine. Plutarch said, in like manner, purging of the wine takes from it all the strength that inflames and enrages the mind and gives it instead thereof a mild and wholesome temper. The waiter, this head waiter, trips us up because of what he said. The Bible said in verse 10, he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. Now what's good wine? The most intoxicating wine? Is that what? And when men have well drunk, and we read that, we say, ah, see, they're, they're already drunken. Come on now, come on. That's not what that means. That's not where Mary is. That's not where Jesus and his disciples are. Not at a party like that. That's not what they're doing. The meaning is that that they've already had this beverage to drink. They've already been drinking. But it's not as good as what Jesus made. It's not as flavorful. And what's wrong with that then? What's the connection? The answer is, have you ever ever seen now, I've never been to a wine testing, a tasting event. I just know that they exist. I've never been to one. But, But I know something about that. Enough to know that between each sip that you take of the various different wines, you've got to cleanse your palate. Even saying that makes me feel, you know, big. I cleanse your palate. I, I, uh, when I'm eating my hamburger, I cleanse my palate with my tea, my half and half tea. Uh, but you know, you, you drink some water because, because the wine is acidic. And, and when you drink it, and it's going to inhibit your ability to taste, to taste the next wine. You won't, ta- you won't really derive it. You won't get it. So you cleanse your palate, and then you can take a sip of the other, and you can distinguish between the two. Could that be what this head waiter was talking about? This wine is better. This wine is a lot better. Why did you put it out second? We should have put it out first. All right, here's number last. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I told you that this Greek word used here, signs, means means that that the sign itself isn't really the issue nor uh, that that people were just amazed by it or or, or, uh, saw this as a wonderful thing. But but this is is how people identify the person who, who did the miracle. This is how they view him and that they see who he is based on this, this act, this sign. It's a sign of, of them. They're something unique, something special, something from heaven is here. Now, what happened is this verse says that those disciples looked at him and, and they already believed in him. Now they believe in him even more. But more than that, they see his glory, doxa, his glory. The, the, the word doxa, glory, means his splendor, his brightness, his brilliance, his majesty. And there you are. When you and I read the miracles of Jesus, we walk away not with simply saying, wow, that's amazing. We walk away and say, I see his glory. Do you see his glory? 
tell me, tell me, what, what do you think of Jesus? Where are you about Jesus? And is your opinion, he was really a remarkable man, or he was a great prophet, or maybe he was the son of God. Huh, isn't, that, isn't that something? Mm, it's not enough. I've got to see his glory. And when you see his glory, when you understand his splendor, his majesty, you want to follow him. You want to follow him. He is our Lord and our God. And maybe that's where you are. I've studied my Bible. I know what he wants. I want to obey the gospel. I want to wear the name of Jesus. And the name is Christian. You can. You can obey the gospel. You can repent of your sins and confess his sweet name. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. You grasp the meaning of that, don't you? Grasp it. Say it. And then to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And he will add you to his body, the church. And we'll do that today. If you want to study about that further, come and see me. And I'll just be happy to sit down and we'll, we'll study that in scripture together. Or maybe, maybe for some reason you need the prayers of Christians. And today would be such a fine time to do that. We'll be happy to pray with you and for you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you'd like to respond, come as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. Brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.